What, he said, is this? It's an amulet, muttered Brother Dunnikin. It's very powerful. Bought it off a man. Guaranteed. Protects you against crocodile bites. Are you sure you can spare it? said the Supreme Grand Master. There was a dutiful titter from the rest of the brethren. Less of that, brothers, said the Grand Master, spinning around. Bring magical things, I said, not cheap jewellery and rubbish. Good grief, this city is lousy with magic. He reached down. What are these things, for heaven's sake? They are stones, said Brother Plasterer, uncertainly. I can see that. Why are they magical? Brother Plasterer began to tremble. They've got holes in them, Supreme Grand Master. Everyone knows that stones with holes in them are magical. The Supreme Grand Master walked back to his place on the circle. He threw his arms up. Right, fine, okay, he said wearily. If that's how we're going to do it, that's how we're going to do it. If we get a dragon six inches long, we'll all know the reason why. Won't we, Brother Plasterer? Brother Plasterer? Sorry, I didn't hear what you said. Brother Plasterer? I said, yes, Supreme Grand Master, whispered Brother Plasterer. Very well, so long as that's quite understood. The Supreme Grand Master turned and picked up the book. And now, he said, if we are all quite ready. Um, Brother Watchtower meekly raised his hand. Ready for what, Supreme Grand Master? he said. For the summoning, of course. Good grief, I should have thought. But you haven't told us what we're supposed to do, Supreme Grand Master, whined Brother Watchtower. The Grand Master hesitated. This was quite true, but he wasn't going to admit it. Well, of course, he said. It's obvious. You have to focus your concentration. Think hard about dragons, he translated. All of you. That's all, is it? said Brother Doorkeeper. Yes. Don't we have to chant a mystic prune or something? The Supreme Grand Master stared at him. Brother Doorkeeper managed to look as defiant in the face of oppression as an anonymous shadow in a black cowl could look. He hadn't joined a secret society not to chant mystic runes. He'd been looking forward to it. You can if you like, said the Supreme Grand Master. Now I want you... Yes, what... Is it Brother Dunnikin? The little brother lowered his hand. Don't know any mystic prunes, Grand Master. Not to what you might call chant. Hmm. He opened the book. He'd been rather surprised to find, after pages and pages of pious ramblings, that the actual summoning itself was one short sentence. Not a chant, not a brief piece of poetry, but a mere assemblage of meaningless syllables. De Malachite said they caused interference patterns in the waves of reality, but the daft old fool was probably making it up as he went along. That was the trouble with wizards. They had to make everything look difficult. All you really needed was willpower, and the brethren had a lot of that. Small-minded and vitriolic willpower, yes, lousy with malignity, maybe, but still powerful enough in its way. They'd try nothing fancy this time round, somewhere inconspicuous. Around him the brethren were chanting what each man considered, according to his lights, to be something mystical. The general effect was actually quite good if you didn't listen to the words. The words. Oh, yes. He looked down and spoke them aloud. Nothing happened. He blinked. When he opened his eyes again, 
He was in a dark alley. His stomach was full of fire, and he was very angry. It was about to be the worst night of his life for Zebo Muti, thief third class, and it wouldn't have made him any happier to know that it was also going to be the last one. The rain was keeping people indoors, and he was way behind on his quota. He was therefore a little less cautious than he might otherwise have been. In the nighttime streets of Ankh-Morpork, caution is an absolute. There was no such thing as moderately cautious. You are either very cautious or you are dead. You might be walking around and breathing, but you're dead just the same. He heard the muffled sounds coming from the nearby alley, slid his leather-bound cosh from his sleeve, waited until the victim was almost turning the corner, sprang out, said, Oh, shit! and died. It was a most unusual death. No one else had died like that for hundreds of years. The stone wall behind him glowed cherry red with heat, which gradually faded into the darkness. He was the first to see the Ankh-Morpork dragon. He derived little comfort from knowing this, however, because he was dead. It, he said, and his disembodied self looked down at the small heap of charcoal, which he knew with an unfamiliar sort of certainty was what he had just been disembodied from. It was a strange sensation, seeing your own mortal remains. He didn't find it as horrifying as he would have imagined if you'd asked him, say, ten minutes ago. Finding that you are dead is mitigated also by finding that there really is a you who can find you dead. The alley opposite was empty again. That was really strange, said Mooty. Extremely unusual, certainly. Did you see that? What was it? Mooty looked up at the dark figure emerging from the shadows. Who are you anyway? he added suspiciously. Guess, said the voice. Mooty peered at the hooded figure. Cool, he said. I thought you didn't turn up for the likes of me. I turn up for everyone. I mean, in person sort of thing. Sometimes on special occasions. Yeah, well, said Mooty, this is one of them, all right. I mean, it looked like a bloody dragon. What's a man to do? You don't expect to find a dragon around the corner. And now, if you would care to step this way, said Death, laying a skeletal hand on Mooty's shoulder. Do you know, a fortune teller once told me I'd die in my bed surrounded by grieving great-grandchildren, said Mooty, following the stately figure. What do you think of that, eh? I think she was wrong. A bloody dragon, said Mooty. Fire-breathing, too. Did I suffer much? No, it was practically instantaneous. That's good. I wouldn't like to think I'd suffered much. Mooty looked around him. What happens now, he said. Behind them, the rain washed the little heap of black ash into the mud. The Supreme Grand Master opened his eyes. He was lying on his back. Brother Dunnikin was preparing to give him the kiss of life. The mere thought was enough to jerk anyone from the borders of consciousness. He sat up, trying to shed the feeling that he weighed several tons and was covered in scales. We did it, he whispered. The dragon, it came. I felt it. The brethren glanced at one another. We never saw nothing, said Brother Plasterer. I might have seen something, 
said Brother Watchtower loyally. No, not here, snapped the Supreme Grand Master. You hardly want it to materialise here, do you? It was out there, in the city, just for a few seconds, he pointed. Look! The brethren turned around guiltily, expecting at any moment the hot flame of retribution. In the centre of the circle, the magic items were gently crumbling to dust. Even as they watched, Brother Dunnikin's amulet collapsed. Sucked dry, whispered Brother Fingers. I'll be damned. Three dollars that amulet cost me, muttered Brother Dunnikin. But it proves it works, said the Supreme Grand Master. Don't you see, fools? It works. We can summon dragons. Could be a bit expensive in magical items, said Brother Fingers doubtfully. Three dollars it was. No rubbish. Power! growled the Supreme Grand Master, does not come cheap. Very true, nodded Brother Watchtower. Not cheap, very true. He looked at the little heap of exhausted magic again. Caw, he said. We did it, though, didn't we? We only went and bloody well did some magic, right? See, said Brother Fingers, I told you there was nothing to it. You all did exceptionally well said the Supreme Grand Master encouragingly. Should have been six dollars, but he said he'd cut his own throat and sell at me for three dollars. Yeah, said Brother Watchtower. We got the hang of it all right. Didn't hurt a bit. We done real magic. And didn't get et by tooth fairies from out the woodwork either, Brother Plasterer, I couldn't help noticing. The other brethren nodded. Real magic. Nothing to it. Everyone had just better watch out. Hang on, though, said Brother Plasterer. Where's this dragon gone? I mean, did we really summon it or not? Fancy you asking a silly question like that, said Brother Watchtower doubtfully. The Supreme Grand Master brushed the dust off his mystic robe. We summoned it, he said, and it came. But only as long as the magic lasted, then it went back. If we want it to stay longer, we need more magic, understand? And that is what we must get. Three dollars I shan't see again in a hurry. Shut up. Dearest father, wrote Carrot. Well, here I am in Ark Moorpork. It is not like at home. I think it must have changed a bit since Mr. Varnashi's great-grandfather was here. I don't think people here know right from wrong. I found Captain Vimes in a common alehouse. I remembered what you said about a good dwarf not going into such places, but since he did not come out, I went in. He was lying with his head on the table. When I spoke to him, he said, Pull the other one, kid. It has got bells on. I believe he was the worse for drink. He told me to find a place to stay and report to Sergeant Colon at the watch house tonight. He said anyone wanting to join the guard needed their head examined. Mr. Varnashi did not mention this. Perhaps it is done for reasons of hygiene? I went for a walk. There are many people here. I found a place. It is called The Shades. Then I saw some men trying to rob a young lady. I set about them. They did not know how to fight properly, and one of them tried to kick me in the vitals. But I was wearing the protective as instructed, and he hurt himself. Then the lady came up to me and said, 
Was I interested in bed? I said yes. She took me to where she lived. A boarding house, I think it is called. It is run by a Mrs. Palm. The lady whose purse it was, she is called Reet, said, You should have seen him. There were three of them. It was amazing. Mrs. Palm said, It is on the house. She said, What a big protective. So I went upstairs and fell asleep, although it is a very noisy place. Reet woke me up once or twice to say, Do you want anything? But they had no apples. So I have fallen on my feet, as they say here, but I don't see how that is possible, because if you fall off your feet, it is common sense. There is certainly a lot to do. When I went to see the sergeant, I saw a place called the Thieves' Guild. I asked Mrs. Palm, and she said, Of course. She said the leaders of the thieves in the city meet there. I went to the watch house and met Sergeant Colon, a very fat man, and when I told him about the Thieves' Guild, he said, Don't be a idiot. I do not think he is serious. He says, Don't you worry about Thieves' Guilds. This is all what you have to do. You walk along the streets at night shouting, It's twelve o'clock and all's well. I said, What if it is not all well? And he said, You bloody well find another street. This is not leadership. I have been given some chain mail. It is rusty and not well made. They give you money for being a guard. It is twenty dollars a month. When I get it, I will send you it. I hope you are all well and that shaft number five is now open. This afternoon I will go and look at the Thieves' Guild. It is disgraceful. If I do something about it, it will be a feather in my cap. I am getting the hang of how they talk here already. Your loving son, Carrot. P.S. Please give all my love to Minty. I really miss her. Lord Vetinari, the patrician of Ankh-Morpork, put his hand over his eyes. He did... what? I was marched through the streets said Erdo van Pugh, currently president of the Guild of Thieves, Burglars and Allied Trades, in broad daylight, with my hands tied together. He took a few steps towards the patrician's severe chair of office, waving a finger. You know very well that we have kept within the budget, he said. To be humiliated like that, like a common criminal, there had better be a full apology he said, or you will have another strike on your hands. We will be driven to it, despite our natural civic responsibilities, he added. It was the finger. The finger was a mistake. The patrician was staring coldly at the finger. Van Pugh followed his gaze and quickly lowered the digit. The patrician was not a man you shook a finger at, unless you wanted to end up being able to count only to nine. And you say this was one person, said Lord Vetinari? Yes, that is, Van Pugh hesitated. It did sound weird, now he came to tell someone. But there are hundreds of you in there, said the patrician calmly. Thick as, you should excuse the expression, thieves. Van Pugh opened and shut his mouth a few times. The honest answer would have been yes, and if anyone had come sidling in and skulking around the corridors, it would have been the worse for them. It was the way he strode in as if he owned the place that fooled everyone. 
that and the fact that he kept hitting people and telling them to mend their ways. The patrician nodded. I shall deal with the matter momentarily, he said. It was a good word. It always made people hesitate. They were never quite sure whether he'd meant he'd deal with it now or just deal with it briefly, and no one ever dared ask. Van Pugh backed down. A full apology, Mark you. I have a position to maintain, he added. Thank you. Do not let me detain you, said the patrician once again, giving the language his own individual spin. Right, good. Thank you. Very well, said the thief. After all, you have such a lot of work to do, Lord Vetinari went on. Well, of course this is the case. The thief hesitated. The patrician's last remark had barbs on it. You found yourself waiting for him to strike. Um, he said, hoping for a clue. With so much business being conducted, that is. Panic took over the thief's features. Randomised guilt flooded his mind. It wasn't a case of what had he done. It was a question of what the patrician had found out about. The man had eyes everywhere, none of them so terrifying as the icy blue ones just above his nose. I, um, don't quite follow, he began. Curious choice of targets. The patrician picked up a sheet of paper. For example, a crystal ball belonging to a fortune teller in Sheer Street. A small ornament from the temple of Offler, the crocodile god, and so on. Gewgaws. I'm afraid I really don't know, said the head thief. The patrician leaned forward. No unlicensed thieving, surely, he said. One of the remarkable innovations introduced by the patrician was to make the thieves' guild responsible for theft, with annual budgets, forward planning, and above all, rigid job protection. Thus, in return for an agreed average level of crime per annum, the thieves themselves saw to it that unauthorised crime was met with the full force of injustice, which was generally a stick with nails in it. "'I shall look into it directly,' stuttered the head thief. "'Depend upon it.' The patrician gave him a sweet smile. "'I'm sure I can,' he said. "'Thank you for coming to see me. Don't hesitate to leave.' The thief shuffled out. It was always like this with the patrician, he reflected bitterly. You came to him with a perfectly reasonable complaint. Next thing you knew, you were shuffling out backwards, bowing and scraping, relieved simply to be getting away. You had to hand it to the patrician, he admitted grudgingly. If you didn't, he sent men to come and take it away. When he'd gone, Lord Vetinari rang the little bronze bell that summoned his secretary. The man's name, despite his handwriting, was Lupine Wants. He appeared pen-poised. You could say this about Lupine once. He was neat. He always gave the impression of just being completed. Even his hair was so smoothed down and oiled it looked as though it had been painted on. The watch appears to be having some difficulty with the thieves' guild, said the patrician. Van Pugh has been in here claiming that a member of the watch arrested him. What for, sir? Being a thief, apparently. A member of the watch, said the secretary. 
I know, but just sort it out, will you? The patrician smiled to himself. It was always hard to fathom Lord Vetinari's idiosyncratic sense of humour, but a vision of the red-faced, irate head thief kept coming back to him. One of the patrician's greatest contributions to the reliable operation of Ark Morpork had been very early in his administration the legalising of the ancient Guild of Thieves. Crime was always with us, he reasoned, and therefore, if you were going to have crime, at least it should be organised crime. And so the Guild had been encouraged to come out of the shadows and build a big guild house, take their place at civic banquets, and set up their training college with day-release courses and city and guild certificates and everything. In exchange for the winding down of the watch, they agreed, while trying to keep their faces straight, to keep crime levels to a level to be determined annually. That way everyone could plan ahead, said Lord Vetinari, and part of the uncertainty had been removed from the chaos that is life. And then, a little while later, the patrician summoned the leading thieves again and said, Oh, by the way, there was something else. What was it now? Oh, yes. I know who you are, he said. I know where you live. I know what kind of horse you ride. I know where your wife has her hair done. I know where your lovely children... How old are they now? My doesn't time fly. I know where they play. So you won't forget about what we agreed, will you? And he smiled. So did they after a fashion. And in fact, it had turned out very satisfactorily from everyone's point of view. It took the head thieves very little time to grow paunches and start having coats of arms made and meet in a proper building rather than smoky dens, which no one had liked much. A complicated arrangement of receipts and vouchers saw to it that while everyone was eligible for the attentions of the Guild, no one had too much, and this was very acceptable at least to those citizens who were rich enough to afford the quite reasonable premiums the Guild charged for an uninterrupted life. There was a strange foreign word for this, in sewer ants. No one knew exactly what it had originally meant, but Ankh Morpork had made it its own. The Watch hadn't liked it, but the plain fact was that the thieves were far better at controlling crime than the Watch had ever been. After all, the Watch had to work twice as hard to cut crime just a little, whereas all the Guild had to do was work less. And so the city prospered, while the watch had dwindled away like a useless appendix into a handful of unemployables who no one in their right mind could ever take seriously. The last thing anyone wanted them to do was get it into their heads to fight crime. But seeing the head thief discommoded was always worth the trouble, the patrician felt. Captain Vimes knocked very hesitantly at the door, because each tap echoed around his skull. Enter... Vimes removed his helmet, tucked it under his arm, and pushed the door open. Its creak was a blunt saw across the front of his brain. He always felt uneasy in the presence of Lupine once. Come to that, he felt uneasy in the presence of Lord Vetinari, but that was different. That was down to breeding. An ordinary fear, of course. Whereas he'd known once since their childhood in the shades. The boy had shown promise even then. He was never a gang leader. Never a gang leader. Hadn't got the strength of stamina for that. And after all, what was the point in being a gang leader? Behind every gang leader, there were a couple of lieutenants bucking for promotion. Being a gang leader is not a job with long-term prospects. But in every gang, there is a pale youth who's allowed to stay because he's the one who comes up with all the clever ideas, usually to do with old women and unlock shops. This was once his natural place in the order of things. Vimes had been one of the middle rankers, the falsetto equivalent of a yes-man. 
He remembered once, as a skinny little kid, always tagging along behind in hand-me-down pants with the kind of odd skipping run he'd invented to keep up with the bigger boys, and forever coming up with fresh ideas to stop them idly ganging up on him, which was the usual recreation if nothing more interesting presented itself. It was superb training for the rigours of adulthood, and once became good at it. Yes, they'd both started in the gutter, but once had worked his way up, whereas he himself would be the first to admit Vimes had merely worked his way along. Every time he seemed to be getting anywhere, he spoke his mind or said the wrong thing, usually both at once. That was what made him uncomfortable around once. It was the ticking of the bright clockwork of ambition. Vimes had never mastered ambition. It was something that happened to other people. Ah, Vimes. Sir, said Vimes, woodenly. He didn't try to salute in case he fell over. He wished he'd had time to drink dinner. Once rummaged in the papers of his desk. Strange things afoot, Vimes. Serious complaint about you, I'm afraid, he said. Once didn't wear glasses. If he had worn glasses, he'd have peered at Vimes over the top of them. Sir? One of your night watchmen seems he arrested the head of the thieves' guild. Vimes swayed a little and tried hard to focus. He wasn't ready for this sort of thing. Sorry, sir, he said. Seemed to have lost you there. I said, Vimes, that one of your men arrested the head of the thieves' guild. One of my men? Yes. Vimes' scattered brain cells tried valiantly to regroup. A member of the watch, he said. Once grinned mirthlessly. Tied him up and left him in front of the palace. There's a bit of a stink about it, I'm afraid. There was a note. Ah, uh, here it is. This man is charged with conspiracy to commit a crime under Section 14, brackets I-I-I, of the General Felonies Act, 1678, by me, Carrot Iron Founderson. Vimes squinted at him. Fourteen I I I. Apparently, said once. What does that mean? I really haven't the faintest notion, said once dryly. And what about the name Carrot? But we don't do things like that, said Vimes. You can't go round arresting the thieves' guild. I mean, we'd be at it all day. Apparently, this carrot thinks otherwise. The captain shook his head and winced. Carrot doesn't ring a bell. The tone of blurred conviction was enough even for once, who was momentarily taken aback. He was quite... The secretary hesitated. Carrot. Carrot. He said, I've heard the name before, seen it written down. His face went blank. The volunteer, that was it. Remember me showing you? Vimes stared at him. Wasn't there a letter from, uh, I don't know, some dwarf? All about serving the community and keeping the streets safe, that's right. Begging that his son would be found suitable for a humble position in the watch. 
The secretary was rummaging amongst his files. What had he done? said Vimes. Nothing, that was it. Not a blessed thing. Vimes' brow creased as his thoughts shaped themselves around a new concept. A volunteer, he said. Yes. He didn't have to join. He wanted to join, and you said it must be a joke, and I said we ought to try and get more ethnic minorities into the watch. You remember? Vimes tried to. It wasn't easy. He was vaguely aware that he drank to forget. What made it rather pointless was that he couldn't remember what it was he was forgetting any more. In the end, he just drank to forget about drinking. A trawl of the chaotic assortment of recollections that he didn't even try to dignify any more by the name of memory produced no clue. Do I? he said helplessly. Once folded his hands on the desk and leaned forward. Now look, Captain, he said, Lordship wants an explanation. I don't want to have to tell him the Captain of the Night Watch hasn't the faintest idea what goes on among the men under, if I may use the term loosely, his command. That sort of thing only leads to trouble. Questions asked, that sort of thing. We don't want that, do we? Do we? No, sir, Vimes muttered. A vague recollection of someone earnestly talking to him in the bunch of grapes was bobbing guiltily at the back of his mind. Surely that hadn't been a dwarf. Not unless the qualification had been radically altered, at any rate. Of course we don't, said once. For old time's sake, and so on. So I'll think of something to tell him, and you, Captain, will make a point of finding out what's going on and putting a stop to it. Give this dwarf a short lesson in what it means to be a guard, all right? <laughs> said Vimes dutifully. I'm sorry, said once. Oh, thought you made an ethnic joke there, sir. Look, Vimes, I'm being very understanding in the circumstances. Now, I want you to get out there and sort this out. Do you understand? Vimes saluted. The black depression that always lurked, ready to take advantage of his sobriety, moved in on his tongue. Right you are, Mr. Secretary, he said. I'll see to it that he learns that arresting thieves is against the law. He wished he hadn't said that. If he didn't say things like that, he'd have been better off now. Captain of the palace guard, a big man, giving him the watch had been the patrician's little joke. But once was already reading a new document on his desk. If he noticed the sarcasm, he didn't show it. Very good, he said. Dearest mother, Carrot wrote, it has been a much better day. I went into the thieves' guild and arrested the chief miscreant and dragged him to the patrician's palace. No more trouble from him, I fancy. And Mrs. Palm says I can stay in the attic because it is always useful to have a man around the place. This was because, in the night, there were men the worse for drink, making a fuss in one of the girls' rooms, and I had to speak to them, and they showed fight, and one of them tried to hurt me with his knee. But I had the protective, and Mrs. Palm says he has broken his patella, but I needn't pay for a new one. I do not understand some of the watch duties. I have a partner. His name is Nobby. He says I am too keen. He says, I have got a lot to learn. 
I think this is true, because I have only got up to page 326 in the laws and ordinances of the cities of Ankh and Morpork. Love to all, your son, Carrot. P.S. Love to Minty. It wasn't just the loneliness, it was the back-to-front way of living. That was it, thought Vimes. The night watch got up when the rest of the world was going to bed, and went to bed when dawn drifted over the landscape. You spent your whole time in the damp, dark streets, in a world of shadows. The night watch attracted the kind of people who, for one reason or another, were inclined to that kind of life. He reached the watch house. It was an ancient and surprisingly large building, wedged between a tannery and a tailor who made suspicious leather goods. It must have been quite imposing once, but quite a lot of it was now uninhabitable and patrolled only by owls and rats. Over the door, a motto in the ancient tongue of the city was now almost eroded by time and grime and lichen, but could just be made out. Fabricati DM PVNC. It translated, according to Sergeant Colon, who had served in foreign parts and considered himself an expert on languages, as to protect and to serve. Yes, being a guard must have meant something once. Sergeant Colon, he thought, as he stumbled into the musty gloom. Now there was a man who liked the dark. Sergeant Colon owed thirty years of happy marriage to the fact that Mrs. Colon worked all day and Sergeant Colon worked all night. They communicated by means of notes. He got her tea ready before he left at night. She left his breakfast nice and hot in the oven in the mornings. They had three grown-up children, all born, Vimes had assumed, as a result of extremely persuasive handwriting. And Corporal Nobbs. Well, anyone like Nobby had unlimited reasons for not wishing to be seen by other people. You didn't have to think hard about that. The only reason you couldn't say that Nobby was close to the animal kingdom was that the animal kingdom would get up and walk away. And then, of course, there was himself. Just a skinny, unshaven collection of bad habits marinated in alcohol. And that was the night watch, just the three of them. Once there had been dozens, hundreds, and now just three. Vimes fumbled his way up the stairs, groped his way into his office, slumped into the primeval leather chair with its prolapsed stuffing, scrabbled at the bottom drawer, grabbed a bottle, bit cork, tugged, spat out cork, drank, began his day. The world swam into focus. Life is just chemicals. A drop here, a drip there, everything's changed. A mere dribble of fermented juices, and suddenly you're going to live another few hours. Once, in the days when this had been a respectable district, some hopeful owner of the tavern next door had paid a wizard a considerable sum of money for an illuminated sign, every letter a different colour. Now it worked erratically and sometimes short-circuited in the damp. At the moment the E was a garish pink and flashed on and off at random. Vimes had grown accustomed to it. It seemed like part of life. He stared at the flickering play of light on the crumbling plaster for a while and then raised one sandaled foot and thumped heavily on the floorboards twice. After a few minutes, a distant wheezing indicated that Sergeant Colon was climbing the stairs. Vimes counted silently. Colon always paused for six seconds at the top of the flight to get some of his breath back. On the seventh second, the door opened. The sergeant's face appeared around it like a harvest moon. You could describe Sergeant Colon like this. He was the sort of man who, if he took up a military career, would automatically gravitate to the post of sergeant. You couldn't imagine him ever being a corporal, or for that matter a captain. 
If he didn't take up a military career, then he looked cut out for something like, perhaps, a sausage butcher. Some job where a big red face and a tendency to sweat even in frosty weather were practically part of the specification. He saluted and, with considerable care, placed a scruffy piece of paper on Vimes's desk and smoothed it out. Evening, Captain, he said. Yesterday's insolent reports and that. Also, you owe fourpence to the tea club. What's this about a dwarf, Sergeant? said Vimes abruptly. Colon's brow wrinkled. What dwarf? The one who's just joined the watch. Name of... Vimes hesitated. Carrot or something. Him? Colon's mouth dropped open. He's a dwarf? I always said you couldn't trust them little buggers. He fooled me all right, Captain. The little sod must have lied about his height. Colon was a sizist, at least when it came to people smaller than himself. Do you know he arrested the president of the Thieves Guild this morning? What for? For being president of the Thieves Guild, it seems. The sergeant looked puzzled. Where's the crime in that? I think perhaps I had better have a word with this carrot, said Vimes. Didn't you see him, sir? said Colon. He said he'd report it to you, sir. I must have been busy at the time. Lot on my mind, said Vimes. Yes, sir, said Colon, politely. Vimes had just enough self-respect left to look away and shuffle the strata of paperwork on his desk. We've got to get him off the streets as soon as possible, he muttered. Next thing you know, he'll be bringing in the chief of the Assassin's Guild for bloody well killing people. Where is he? I sent him out with Corporal Nobbs, Captain. I said he'd show him the ropes sort of thing. You sent a raw recruit out with Nobby, said Vimes wearily. Colon stuttered. Well, sir, experienced man, I thought Corporal Nobbs would teach him a lot. Let's just hope he's a slow learner, said Vimes, ramming his brown iron helmet on his head. Come on. When they stepped out of the watch house, there was a ladder against the tavern wall. A bulky man at the top of it swore under his breath as he wrestled with the illuminated sign. It's the E that doesn't work properly, Vimes called up. What? The E, and the T sizzles when it rains. It's about time it was fixed. Fixed? Oh, yes, fixed. Uh, that's what I'm doing, all right. Fixing? The watchmen splashed off through the puddles. Brother Watchtower shook his head slowly and turned his attention once again to his screwdriver. Men like Corporal Nobbs can be found in every armed force. Although their grasp of the minutiae of the regulations is usually encyclopedic, they take good care never to be promoted beyond, perhaps, corporal. He tended to speak out of the corner of his mouth, he smoked incessantly, but the weird thing, Carrot noticed, was that any cigarette smoked by Nobby became a dog-end almost instantly, but remained a dog-end indefinitely or until lodged behind his ear, which was a sort of nicotine elephant's graveyard. On the rare occasions he took one out of his mouth, he held it cupped in his hand. He was a small bandy-legged man with a certain resemblance to a chimpanzee who never got invited to tea parties. His age was indeterminate but in cynicism and general world-weariness, which is a sort of carbon dating of the personality, he was about 7,000 years old. A cushy number, this route, 
he said, as they strolled along a damp street in the merchant's quarter. He tried a door handle. It was locked. You stick with me, he added, and I'll see you're all right. Now, you try the handles on the other side of the street. Ah, uh, I understand, Corporal Nobbs. We've got to see if anyone's left their store unlocked, said Carrot. You catch on fast, son. I hope I can apprehend a miscreant in the act, said Carrot, zealously. Er, uh, yeah, said Nobby, uncertainly. But if we find a door unlocked, I suppose we must summon the owner, Carrot went on, and one of us would have to stay to guard things, right? Yeah, Nobby brightened. I'll do that, he said. Don't you worry about it. Then you could go and find the victim. Uh, uh, owner, I mean. He tried another doorknob. It turned under his grip. Back in the mountains, said Carrot, if a thief was caught, he was hung up by the... He paused, idly rattling a doorknob. Nobby froze. By the what? He said in horrified fascination. Can't remember now, said Carrot. My mother said it was too good for them anyway. Stealing is wrong. Nobby had survived any number of famous massacres by not being there. He let go of the doorknob and gave it a friendly pat. Got it, said Carrot. Nobby jumped. Got what? he shouted. I remember what we hang them up by, said Carrot. Oh, said Nobby weakly. Where? We hang them up by the town hall said Carrot, sometimes for days. Then they don't do it again, I can tell you. And Bjorn strong in the arms, your uncle. Nobby leaned his pike against the wall and fumbled a fag end from the recesses of his ear. One or two things he decided needed to be sorted out. Why did you have to become a guard, lad? he said. Everyone keeps on asking me that, said Carrot. I didn't have to. I wanted to. It will make a man of me. Nobby never looked at anyone directly in the eye. He stared at Carrot's right ear in amazement. You mean you ain't running away from anything? he said. What would I want to run away from anything for? Nobby floundered a bit. Ah, well, there's always something. Uh, maybe, maybe you was wrongly accused of something, like... Maybe, he grinned, maybe the stores was mysteriously short on certain items and you was unjustly blamed? Or certain items was found in your kit and you never knew how they got there, that sort of thing? You can tell old Nobby. Or he nudged Carrot. Perhaps it was something else, eh? Cherchez la femme, eh? <laughs> Got a girl into trouble. I... Carrot began, and then remembered that, yes, one should tell the truth, even to odd people like Nobby, who didn't seem to know what it was. And the truth was that he was always getting Minty into trouble, although exactly how and why was a bit of a mystery. Just about every time he left after paying calls on her at the Rocksmacker Cave, he could hear her father and mother shouting at her. They were always very polite to him, but somehow merely being seen with him was enough to get Minty into trouble. Yes, he said. Ah, often the case, said Nobby wisely. All the time, said Carrot. Just about every night, really. Blimey, said Nobby, impressed. He looked down at the protective. Is that why they make you wear that, then, eh? What do you mean? 
Well, don't worry about it, said Nobby. Everyone's got their little secret, or, or, or big secret, as it might be. <laughs> Even the captain. He's only with us because he was brung low by a woman. That's what the sergeant says, brung low. Goodness, said Carrot. It sounded painful. But I reckon tis cause he speaks his mind. Spoke it once too often to the patrician, I heard. Said the thieves' guild was nothing but a pack of thieves or something. That's why he's with us. Dunno, really. He looked speculatively at the pavement and then said, So where's you staying then, lad? There's a lady called Mrs. Palm, Carrot began. Nobby choked on some smoke that went the wheng way. In the shades, he wheezed. You're staying there? Oh, yes. Every night? Well, every day, really, yes. And you've come here to have a man made of you? Yes. I don't think I should like to live where you come from, said Nobby. Look, said Carrot, thoroughly lost. I came because Mr. Varnashi said it was the finest job in the world, upholding the law and everything. That's right, isn't it? Well, um, said Nobby, as to that, I mean, that upholding the law, I mean, yeah, once, yes, before we had all the guilds and stuff. The law sort of thing ain't really, I mean, these days everything's more, uh, I don't know. Basically, you just ring your bell and keep your head down. Nobby sighed. Then he grunted, snatched his hourglass from his belt, and peered in at the rapidly draining sand grains. He put it back, pulled the leather muffler off his bell's clapper, and shook it once or twice, not very loudly. Twelve of the clock, he muttered, and all's well. And that's it, is it? said Carrot, as the tiny echoes died away. More or less, more or less. Nobby took a quick drag on his dog end. Just that. No moonlight chases across rooftops. No swinging on chandeliers. Nothing like that, said Carrot. Shouldn't think so, said Nobby fervently. I never done anything like that. No one ever said anything to me about that. He snatched a puff on the cigarette. A man could catch his death of cold chasing around on rooftops. I reckon I'll stick to the bell, if it's all the same to you. Can I have a go? said Carrot. Nobby was feeling unbalanced. It can be the only reason why he made the mistake of wordlessly handing Carrot the bell. Carrot examined it for a few seconds. Then he waved it vigorously over his head. Twelve o'clock, he bellowed, and all's well. The echoes bounced back and forth across the street and finally were overwhelmed by a horrible, thick silence. Several dogs barked somewhere in the night, a baby started crying. Shh, hissed Nobby. Well, it is all well, isn't it? said Carrot. It won't be if you keep on ringing that bloody bell. Give it here. I don't understand, said Carrot. Look, I've got this book Mr. Varnashi gave me. He fumbled for the laws and ordinances. Nobby glanced at them and shrugged. Never heard of them, he said. Now just shut up your row. You don't want to go making a din like that. You could attract all sorts. Come on, this way. He grabbed Carrot's arm and bustled him along the street. What sorts? protested Carrot as he was pushed determinedly forward. Bad sorts, muttered Nobby. But we're the watch. 
Damn right, and we don't want to go tangling with people like that. Remember what happened to Gaskin? I don't remember what happened to Gaskin, said Carrot, totally bewildered. Who's Gaskin? Before your time, mumbled Nobby. He deflated a bit. Poor bugger. Could have happened to any of us. He looked up and glared at Carrot. Now stop all this, you hear? It's getting on my nerves. Moonlight bloody chases my bum. He stalked along the street. Nobby's normal method of locomotion was a kind of sidle, and the combination of stalking and sidling at the same time created a strange effect, like a crab limping. But, but, said Carrot, in this book it says, I don't want to know from no book, growled Nobby. Carrot looked utterly crestfallen. But it's the law, he began. He was nearly terminally interrupted by an axe that whirred out of a low doorway beside him and bounced off the opposite wall. It was followed by sounds of splintering timber and breaking glass. Hey, Nobby, said Carrot urgently, there's a fight going on. Nobby glanced at the doorway. Of course there is, he said. It's a dwarf bar, worst kind. You keep out of there, kid. Them little buggers like to trip you up and then kick twelve kinds of shit out of you. You come along and Nobby and he'll... He grabbed Carrot's tree-trunk arm. It was like trying to tow a building. Carrot had gone pale. Dwarfs? Drinking? And fighting? he said. You bet, said Nobby. All the time and they use the kind of language I wouldn't even use to my own dear mother. You don't want to mix it with them. They're a poisonous bunch of... Don't go in there! No one knows why dwarfs, who at home in the mountains lead quiet, orderly lives, forget it all when they move to the big city. Something comes over even the most blameless iron ore miner and prompts him to wear chainmail all the time, carry an axe, change his name to something like grab-throat shin-kicker, and drink himself into surly oblivion. It's probably because they do live such quiet and orderly lives back home. After all, probably the first thing a young dwarf wants to do when he hits the big city after seventy years of working for his father at the bottom of a pit is have a big drink and then hit someone. The fight was one of those enjoyable dwarfish fights with about a hundred participants and one hundred and fifty alliances. The screams, oaths and the ringing of axes on iron helmets mingled with the sounds of a drunken group by the fireplace who, another dwarfish custom, was singing about gold. Nobby bumped into the back of Carrot, who was watching the scene with horror. "'Look, it's like this every night in here,' said Nobby. "'Don't interfere. That's what the sergeant says. It's their ethnic folkways or something. You don't go messing with ethnic folkways.' "'But... but...' Carrot stuttered. "'These are my people. Uh, sort of. It's shameful acting like this. What must everyone think?' We think they're mean little buggers, said Nobby. Now come on. But Carrot had waded into the scuffling mass. He cupped his hands around his mouth and bellowed something in a language Nobby didn't understand. Practically any language, including his native one, would have fitted that description, but in this case it was dwarfish. Grrrdusk, grrrdusk, akzd burk tsetsim. Literally... Good day, good day. What is all of this that is going on here in this place? The fighting stopped. A hundred bearded faces glared up at Carrot's stooped figure, their annoyance mingled with surprise. 
A battered tankard bounced off his breastplate. Carrot reached down and picked up a struggling figure without apparent effort. Juk rdzutzi rud edztudsa, hrdzud dezek drezhuk, huzu kruk budutuku gek, mek budtududs, to be kek kirkis grtrukuk hektikt, abtuthuk. Listen, sunshine, literally, the stare of the great hot eye in the sky whose fiery gaze penetrates the mouth of the cavern. I don't want to have to give anyone a smacking, so if you play butuduz with me, butuduz, a popular dwarfish game which consists of standing a few feet apart and throwing large rocks at one another's head, I'll play butuduz with you, okay? Literally, all correctly beamed and propped. No dwarf had ever heard so many old-tongue words from the mouth of anyone over four feet high. They were astonished. Carrot lowered the offending dwarf to the floor. There were tears in his eyes. "'You're dwarfs,' he said. "'Dwarfs shouldn't be acting like this. Look at you all. Aren't you ashamed?' One hundred bone-hard jaws dropped. "'I mean, look at you,' Carrot shook his head. Can you imagine what your poor white-bearded old mother, slaving away back in her little hole, wondering how her son is getting on tonight, can you imagine what she'd think if she saw you now, your own dear mothers, who first showed you how to use a pickaxe? Nobby, standing by the doorway, in terror and amazement, was aware of a growing chorus of nose-blowings and muffled sobs. As Carrot went on, she's probably thinking... I expect he's having a quiet game of dominoes or something. A nearby dwarf, wearing a helmet encrusted with six-inch spikes, started to cry gently into his beer. And I bet it's a long time since any of you wrote her a letter, too. And you promised to write every week. Nobby absent-mindedly took out a grubby handkerchief and passed it to a dwarf who was leaning against the wall, shaking with grief. Now then said Carrot kindly. I don't want to be hard on anyone, but I shall be coming past here every night from now on, and I shall expect to see proper standards of dwarf behaviour. I know what it's like when you're far from home, but there's no excuse for this sort of thing. He touched his helmet. Gurhuk took. Evening all. Literally, felicitations to all present at the closing of the day. He gave them all a bright smile, and half walked, half crouched out of the bar. As he emerged into the street, Nobby tapped him on the arm. "'Don't you ever do anything like that to me again,' he fumed. "'You're in the city watch. Don't give me any more of this law business.' "'But it is very important,' said Carrot, seriously, trotting after Nobby as he sidled into a narrower street. "'Not as important as staying in one piece,' said Nobby. "'Dwarf bars. If you've got any sense, my lad, you'll come in here and shut up.' Carrot stared up at the building they had reached. It was set back a little from the mud of the street. The sounds of considerable drinking were coming from inside. A battered sign hung over the door. It showed a drum. A tavern, is it? said Carrot thoughtfully. Open at this hour. Don't see why not, said Nobby, pushing open the door. Damn useful idea. The mended drum. And more drinking? Carrot thumbed hastily through the book. I hope so said Nobby. He nodded to the troll, which was employed by the drum as a splatter, which is like a bouncer, but trolls use more force. Evening, detritus. Just showing the new lad the ropes. The troll grunted and waved a crusted arm. 
The inside of the mended drum is now legendary as the most famous disreputable tavern on the Discworld, and such a feature of the city that after recent unavoidable redecorations, the new owner spent days recreating the original patina of dirt, soot, and less identifiable substances on the walls and imported a ton of pre-rotted rushes for the floor. The drinkers were the usual bunch of heroes, cutthroats, mercenaries, desperados and villains, and only microscopic analysis could have told which was which. Thick coils of smoke hung in the air, perhaps to avoid touching the walls. The conversation dipped fractionally as the two guards wandered in, and then rose to its former level. A couple of cronies waved to Nobby. He realised that Carrot was busy. "'What are you doing?' he said. "'And no talking about mothers, right?' "'I'm taking notes,' said Carrot grimly. "'I've got a notebook.' "'That's the ticket,' said Nobby. "'You'll like this place. "'I comes here every night for my supper.' "'How do you spell contravention?' said Carrot, turning over a page. "'I don't,' said Nobby, pushing through the crowds. "'A rare impulse to generosity lodged in his mind. "'What do you want to drink?' "'I don't think that would be very appropriate,' said Carrot. "'Anyway, strong drink is a mocker.' He was aware of a penetrating stare in the back of his neck and turned and looked into the big, bland and gentle face of an orangutan. It was seated at the bar with a pint mug and a bowl of peanuts in front of it. It tilted its glass amicably towards Carrot and then drank deeply and noisily by apparently forming its lower lip into a sort of prehensile funnel and making a noise like a canal being drained.' Carrot nudged Nobby. "'There's a monkey,' he began. "'Don't say it,' said Nobby urgently. "'Don't say the word. "'It's the librarian. "'Works up at the university. "'Always comes down here for a nightcap of an evening.' "'And people don't object?' "'Why should they?' said Nobby. "'He always stands his round just like everyone else.' Carrot turned and looked at the ape again. A number of questions pressed for attention, such as, where does it keep its money? The librarian caught his gaze, misinterpreted it, and gently pushed the bowl of peanuts towards him. Carrot pulled himself to his full, impressive height and consulted his notebook. The afternoon spent reading the laws and ordinances had been well spent. Who is the owner, proprietor, lessee, or landlord of these premises? he said to Nobby. What's that? said the small guard. Landlord? "'Well, I suppose Charlie here is in charge tonight. Why?' He indicated a large, heavy-set man whose face was a net of scars. Its owner paused in the act of spreading the dirt more evenly around some glasses by means of a damp cloth and gave Carrot a conspiratorial wink. "'Charlie, this is Carrot,' said Nobby. "'He's stopping along of rosy palms.' "'Well, every night,' said Charlie. Carrot cleared his throat. "'If you are in charge,' he intoned, "'then it is my duty to inform you that you are under arrest.' "'Arrest of what, friend?' said Charlie, still polishing. "'Under arrest,' said Carrot, "'with a view to the presentation of charges to wit one, brackets I, "'that on or about the 18th Groon, at a place called the Mended Drum, Filigree Street, "'you did a—' serve, or B, did cause to serve alcoholic beverages after the hours of twelve, midnight, contrary to the provisions of the public ale houses, opening, act of 1678, and one, brackets, two eyes, on or about 18th Groon, at a place called the Mended Drum, Filigree Street, you did serve, or did cause to serve alcoholic beverages in containers, 
other than of a size and capacity laid down by aforesaid act, and two, brackets I, that honour about 18th Groon, at a place called the Mended Drum, Filigree Street, you did allow customers to carry unsheathed edge weapons of a length greater than seven inches, contrary to section three of said act, and two, brackets two eyes, that honour about 18th Groon, at a place called the Mended Drum, Filigree Street, you did serve alcoholic beverages in premises apparently unlicensed for the sale and or consumption of said beverages, contrary to section 3 of the aforesaid Act. There was a dead silence, as Carrot turned over another page and went on. It is also my duty to inform you that it is my intention to lay evidence before the justices with a view to the consideration of charges under the Public Foregatherings, brackets, Gambling Act, 1567, the Licensed Premises, brackets, Hygiene Acts of 1433, 1456, 1463, 1465, uh, and 1473, Charlie carefully put down his glass, whose smears had been buffed up to a brilliant shine, and looked down at Nobby. Nobby was endeavouring to pretend that he was totally alone and had no connection whatsoever with anyone who might be standing next to him, and coincidentally wearing an identical uniform. "'What do you mean, justices?' he said to Nobby. "'There ain't no justices.' Nobby gave a terrified shrug. "'New, is he?' said Charlie. "'Make it easy on yourself.' said Carrot. "'This is nothing personal, you understand?' said Charlie to Nobby. "'It's just a what's-a-name. Had a wizard in here the other night talking about it, sort of bendy educational thing, you know?' He appeared to think for a moment. "'Er, uh, learning curve, that was it. It's a learning curve. Detritus, get your big stony ass over here a moment.' Generally about this time in the mended drum someone throws a glass, and in fact this now happened.